0: Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for outstanding comedy series and all other eligible categories. That's ChumbaCasino.com.
1: No purchase necessary. VGW. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
0: Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 170 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most significant figures in comedy and politics of the past 20 years. A correspondent on Comedy Central's The Daily Show from 1997 through 2005, the host of Comedy Central's The Colbert Report from 2005 through 2014, and the host of CBS's The Late Show with Stephen Colbert ever since September 8, 2015, the one and only Stephen Colbert. Colbert, who is 53, was born in Washington, D.C. and raised in South Carolina, the youngest of 11 kids. His life was rocked at the age of 10 when his father and his two brothers closest in age to himself were killed in the crash of Eastern Airlines Flight 212. By that time, his other siblings were all older and out of the home, meaning that Colbert and his mother largely were left to take care of each other. And it was out of a desire to brighten her spirits that he gravitated towards comedy, with which he became increasingly obsessed, and acting, which is something she had wished to pursue when she was younger. After two years at Hampton-Sydney College in Virginia, he transferred to Northwestern University in Chicago, where he became a theater major and, after meeting the legendary Del Close, also began wading into improvisational comedy, ultimately at fabled Second City. There, he understudied Steve Carell, who he would later recommend for a job at The Daily Show, and became particularly close with Paul Donello and Amy Sedaris, with whom he would later co-create, with Mitch Rouse, the Comedy Central comedy series, Strangers with Candy. But first, he endured several lean years in New York, to which he moved for a job on the short-lived sketch comedy series Exit 57, and where he remained for a short but memorable stint writing for ABC's The Dana Carvey Show, where he and Carell also played Ace and Gary, respectively, in Robert Smigel's The Ambiguously Gay Duo cartoons, which they reprised on Saturday Night Live. Subsequently, a brief tenure filming humorous segments for ABC's Good Morning America led to a gig on The Daily Show, which still was hosted by Craig Kilborn, but two years later was taken over by Jon Stewart, with whom Colbert hit it off, and who empowered Colbert to create interesting characters with a political point of view for field segments. The self-important newsman personality that Colbert adopted, quote-unquote Stephen Colbert, evolved from a very serious Stone Phillips type into a more buffoonish and self-aggrandizing character modeled after a number of talking heads of the time, but particularly Bill O'Reilly and was instrumental in turning The Daily Show into one of the most popular and influential programs on television. During Colbert's time on the show, he shared in two Peabody Awards and three Emmys for Best Writing for a Variety, Music, or Comedy Program, while the show itself won five Emmys for Best Variety Series. Quote-unquote Stephen Colbert became so popular that Stewart and Colbert ultimately decided to create a spin-off show for him, The Colbert Report, which would follow The Daily Show each night. And for the next decade, few, if any, people on TV more effectively or humorously reported and mocked the news and newsmakers of the day than those two. Along the way, Colbert picked up another two Peabody Awards, another four Emmys for Best Writing for a Variety Music or Comedy Program, and two Emmys for Best Variety Series. In April 2014, it was announced that David Letterman would be vacating his job as host of CBS's late-night institution, The Late Show and to the surprise of many, that Colbert would be replacing him, trading in cable for broadcast, four half-hour shows a week for five-hour-long shows a week, and, most significantly, retiring the character of quote-unquote Stephen Colbert for something that few people had seen before, Stephen Colbert himself. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Late Show, high above the Ed Sullivan Theater in Midtown Manhattan, on a Pizza Tuesday, as in a day when the staff of The Late Show was treated to pizza because the show had topped the ratings for the week, Colbert and I discussed a wide range of topics. Among them, how he feels the tragedy that struck his family in 1974 shaped the person that he became, how his background in improv prepared him for The Daily Show, and how the quote-unquote Stephen Colbert character evolved there and later at The Colbert Report, why he walked away from The Colbert Report for The Late Show, why he initially struggled to find his footing there, and what turned it around, and how it feels, a year after The Late Show was slumping in the ratings, wasn't even nominated for the Best Variety Series Emmy, and was rumored to be in danger of having to swap time slots with James Corden's The Late Late Show, to now be the top-rated show in all of Late Night and nominated for Best Variety Series, on top of a Best Variety special nom for Colbert's Showtime one-off, Stephen Colbert's live election night democracy series finale who's going to clean up this shit all at an Emmy ceremony that Colbert himself will host on September 17th great comeback or greatest comeback we report you decide so without further ado let's go to that conversation. Stephen thank you so much for doing this really appreciate it we always begin just with the basics where were you born and raised and what did your
1: folks do for a living. I was born in Washington DC at Georgetown University Hospital on May 13th 1964 <laughs> my dad was the head of allergy and infectious disease for the National Institutes of Health mm-hmm. in Bethesda yeah which is where we lived at 911 Honeybee Lane and my mom was a homemaker mm-hmm. she was a mother of 11 children 11, yeah I think she might have been busier yeah. <laughs> well so I understand
0: it was a pretty observant Catholic family, and maybe that has something to do with 11 kids.
1: Yes, I think so.
0: (laughs) How do you think you were shaped by the fact that that was the case as far as the role of religion in your life, and also the fact that there were so many
1: kids, you being the youngest? Two great questions, totally different. One is, is, what is the role of religion in the life of the Colbert family? Where do you begin? What is the role of marble in the shape of a statue? I mean, it was so, so important. On a certain, you know, pedestrian level, we went to church every mm-hmm. Sunday, but we also said our prayers and and not not a grace, not a grace at meals mm-hmm. is the odd thing. That's, I think, when I was a child, at least, that was less of a Catholic thing. Mm-hmm. That was more of a Protestant thing, mm-hmm. at least where I lived. Yes. Um, prayers every night, prayers all the time, offering it up to God if there was something wrong, if you had some trouble. Mm-hmm. Well, mom would say, offer it up, <laughs> offer it up. You know whatever you were suffering right. through right now, right. and she would say, "Oh, there's just there's another jewel in your crown." Right. When you get to heaven, because we all have crowns That's when up. we get to heaven, and we would say, "Oh my God, my crown's going to be so heavy <laughs> when I get up there." You know, uh, for like my mom made <laughs> Halloween costumes of the saints, like so whatever your saint is, you know, like Saint Stephen would wear yeah. like rags and carry a stone because right. he was stoned to death. Right. So it was sort of infused in every aspect of our lives. And my father was a, an intellectual, a real one, I believe. His idea of fun was reading French humanist philosophers really? like Jacques Maritain, yeah. Lemblois, and Christian humanists, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. So I don't know, faith was just enormous. And my father and two of my brothers died when I was younger. And that brought home the needs of, of the faith, or the faith served my mother and myself and my family in a profound way, because you're faced with this enormous suffering, and then you get to the essential message of the cross, which is that God made man suffers with you, and therefore can love you fully, because he fully understands the human experience. And then you are given hope of, of redemption by the example of Christ.
0: I don't want to ask you to talk any more than you want about what what happened when you were 10, but it just seems like it was clearly as it would be for anyone instrumental in shaping the person who you became. And it seems like also the interest in making people laugh, particularly your mother, Lorna, Uh, can I ask you just how you think as a person you were changed by that tragedy when you were 10?
1: The scope of how it would change you or how someone is changed Mm -hmm. by a tragedy at a young age is so broad. I can give you some things that are different, Uh but I don't really know how it changed me. I have this recurrent image in my mind sometimes when I'm driving down a highway, especially a lonely highway, someplace Uh like in the high mountain west where it's just you, the road, the plains, and the sky. And when I look forward, I imagine that the blue sky in front of me is actually not blue sky. It's a mountain so big that the edges of the slopes as they come down to the horizon are beyond my peripheral vision on either side. And then I'm actually driving toward a mountain I can't see. And in my mind, what happened to my family when I was a child affected us to a degree that it's a mountain we can't see. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You can like approach it and see sort of part of the slopes. But I have said to myself more than once, gosh, I hope I live long enough to figure out what, that did to me or mm-hmm. who I am as a result of of many things in my life mm-hmm. but obviously I mean for years I half jokingly thought that I had my secret name was September 11th 1974 because that was the day they died and that was my you know they say you can't control a demon unless you can name it mm-hmm. it's real name mm-hmm. and I've always thought well no one will ever be able to control me because no one knows my secret name and my secret name is that event and that is it's almost like that event Created a labyrinth in my mind in which I could hide when I was younger. No one could find me if I went into the labyrinth of that experience. But I was also lost in there. You know, I thought I was the Minotaur. But I think I was just lost without a ball of yarn for for many, many years. And comedy was a relief. You know, I played every night for years. I played either George Carlin Class Clown or Bill Cosby Very Funny Fellow or Bill Cosby Wonderfulness or David Fry's Richard Nixon a Fantasy Steve Martin's Wild and Crazy Guy Let's Get Small comedy albums were were the greatest drug you know yeah. the you know what is it the religion is the opiate of the masses my god I I'm, I'm a religious person or I have yeah, been yeah Religion's got nothing on comedy in terms of its opiate abilities. (laughs) And so comedy was my opiate. Comedy became not my religion, but certainly I heard a vocation there. Like I wanted to be part of that. I wanted, wanted, in a way, without consciously knowing it when I was younger, I wanted to be the person who made everybody feel better. And I saw comedy as a way to do it. So
0: we should note that... At the time of this of this tragedy, you were the only child still of these eleven that was still at home with your mother. After
1: they died, through circumstances of college, career, and marriages, we went from a lot of people in the house to me and mom. Right, Lulu came home for a while. My sister mm-hmm. Lulu came home for a while, but then she got married shortly thereafter. So it was mostly just me and mom for the next eight to ten years. And from what I've what I've read, and I you know try to
0: go back as far as I can and mm-hmm. just read everything that you've said, it seems like. There was almost a role reversal, and you felt that it was a challenge or desire to make her
1: laugh. And that was the beginning of you being funny. <laughs> mom and I had, had a joke, which is that yeah. I, you know, after age 10, I raised my mom. Really? You know, because she needed sure. somebody. Sure. I did too, but yeah. in some ways, a mother's tragedy is greater, and I think would say in every way. So, yeah, I, just, I wanted to make her laugh and feel better. And, and she is a great audience. She, she was she a great was audience, it. Yeah. you know, like <laughs> she made it in some ways, you know, you know there's no no one you want to make feel better than your mom. Yeah. And she was such a goer. She was so she was so funny. She was a great audience. She had studied to be an actress when she was younger. She introduced me to art and and, and music and, and theater and opera. And she was a great guide. For my artistic interests and at the same time she was the ultimate person to make laugh my sense is that for you you
0: you know you were taking care of her but the way you you I guess took care of yourself aside from the the comedy albums that you would listen to regularly you were also beginning to do various types of writing a lot of reading and then a lot of uh, <laughs> right and then and then the big thing that I found really interesting because I w- almost wonder if it's metaphorical on a few levels, you were getting into Dungeons and Dragons in a major way from what I read. This is a game where you sort of escape into fantasy and assume a persona other than your own, which rings some bells for things later on. I just wonder, was that sort
1: of just a way to get out of your own head? I don't know. I mean, it was play. It was was game playing. So I read a lot of science fiction and fantasy when I was younger, and I still do. I still enjoy it. Mm But I read about... I mean, there were a period of times I was reading about a book a day. Wow. I, mean, I have pulp. You know, pulp science yeah. fiction and fantasy. And and didn't study at school at all. Just that's all I would do. <laughs> I would read at school and they'd take right. the book away from me and i to get it back at the end of the day or the week or the month or the semester right. or whatever. And then I would I would read as soon as I got home and I would get and go up to my room instead of doing the homework I would read and then I would get into bed and I would read and sometimes I would stay up all night. And I would just read book after book. I'd read a couple books a night and then I'd get to... I'd go to school the next day without having slept at all because I was reading all night right. it happened, you know, many times right, actually right. ran out of books to read really. I mean, books of my, yeah. I was not reading my dad's, right, right, right. you know, French philosophy, but D and D just dovetailed into that because I had some friends who were playing Dungeons and Dragons when they were in seventh grade. How old are you in seventh grade? Probably You're 12? Yeah, searching, 12, searching, Yeah, 12, 12. How are those kids in stranger things? they are like 12 yeah, something like that And yeah, yeah, yeah. when I saw that series, man, that was me <laughs> really? and Haskell Fudenberg and Moss Mendelssohn and Keith Sarge <laughs> and Bennett Stackhouse and Paul Parker and Carl Leroy <laughs> and you know all of my friends playing D d and so social outcasts completely because you know one of the things they're they're conveying pretty well in stranger things is that this was not a cool thing. This is back when being a nerd was being a nerd you actually had to pay dues <laughs> right. for being a nerd. But anyway, two of my friends—I think it was maybe Haskell Keith and Roy—were talking one day at the lunch table in, I think, I think seventh grade, and they were talking about the night before they had been on a adventure and they had been outside of a iron bound oak door and had listened and not heard the giant rats until they went <laughs> in. I'm like, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> and they explained to me, you know. Player characters and non-player characters and monsters using you'd encounter and probability hit tables and armor classes and, you know, enchanted objects. And I was 100% in. <laughs> and this was, and we'd already started playing Metamorphosis Alpha. Do you know what Metamorphosis no. Alpha is? No. Okay, so D&D really took off. But before there was D&D, there was another game created by Gary Gygax, also the creator of Dun- Dungeons & Dragons, though so there's some. I think probably people debate. Maybe that, I don't know. <laughs> right. But Gary Gygax, he created a, a game called Metamorphosis Alpha, which was really kind of based on Heinlein's universe short story, where there's a colony ship going to Alpha Centauri, let's say. I'm not, I am can't remember where it's going. Toss Ceti. Right. And it's such a long trip that the colonists are in stasis, yeah. and the crew is running the ship. And the ship's so big... And the journey's so long that the crew dies, the colonists wake up, and they don't know where they are. Mm -hmm. They go for so many centuries that civilization falls within the ship, and they revert to a barbarous society. And the one thing you're not supposed to do is go up toward the captain, which is sort of like God. And Metamorphosis Alpha was you're on the universe ship, essentially, and can you survive a ship that's full of mutants because of radiation leaks (laughs) and stuff like that? The, the oh, I just loved. I just time. loved it. So, but but yeah, <laughs> I suppose it had it has something to do yeah. with being an wanting to be an actor. You yeah. know, I guess because you got to play characters. And if I put, I put so much effort into D and D. If I if I had if I had put at half as much effort into studying for school, I might have gotten decent grades. I barely graduated from high school. I, I you know, I, I I learned things incidentally just from how many books I read. Well, while you
0: were in high school, I guess you. First dabbled in acting, from what I read, but then you go off to college mm-hmm. initially, Hampton, Sydney, mm-hmm. where you've said with a, with I guess a few exceptions. I was reading about this professor Coy, but mostly it seems like it was not your kind of a scene. And then you transferred to it was North, super
1: conservative, and cons- I'm not. I mean, not that I haven't had conservative tendencies in my life at times, right. but it was it was sort of very socially conservative yeah. and intellectually conservative but intellectually rigorous which is oh, yeah. when i say so, intellectually conservative that's not a knock yeah, yeah, it's yeah. just a flavor
0: but also the offerings as far as acting you you started i guess to get more into it and then you realized northwestern is the place to go
1: yes exactly
0: and so at
1: northwestern once and you if you wanted a undergrad like liberal arts education at the same time which i did i yeah, didn't want yeah, to leave academia behind right so
0: when you got to northwestern and you're and transferred in there for their acting program, which I, I know is supposed to be three years and you packed it in to two. Yeah. What was the – it sounds like one of the big things that they had you do as a, a, one of the most memorable things they had you do, you said, was, quote, tear down the walls, close quote, that, that keep people from revealing their true emotions and kind of inhibitions and, mm-hmm. I guess, make you a better actor. And so when you got there, what effect did that have on you? Did you become – a more open person, a better actor. Like, What was the effect on you?
1: I think it was the first time in my life when I started to reflect on what had happened to me and my family as a child. There's a preservation instinct of emotional reserve mm-hmm. because if you got a great tragedy, I think it can feel like a pool of lava you don't want to let out. Right. Like it, it can feel dangerous to you to touch it. It's electric. Um, it's electric lava. Yeah. I makes my metaphors, yeah. but it, no, it, yeah. it can be dangerous to you. And so I had adopted a persona who was extremely... Reserved. I mean, my public, not a stage persona. My persona was this reserved, bookish, spectacled guy who I think was pretty uptight. And I had a, a great teacher named Ann Woodworth, who's, who's still there mm-hmm. at Northwestern, who challenged me to show her how I felt in a scene. That don't give me a, a facsimile. Don't engage in verisimilitude. Really... Show me how you feel in a scene, and she had a, conce- a-, a keen perceiver of, of human behavior after teaching for many years. And she could tell when I was I was bullshitting her, and she caught me flat-footed enough times that I would say I reacted inappropriately in terms of the rage I had toward her <laughs> to make me sort of feel publicly when right. I'd worked so hard right. to be an excellent fireproof lockbox of right. my own feelings. And she encouraged me to go to, like, she got me to go to therapy. She, she, was, she was incredibly influential in my life. And I think a lot of the, the skill that I gained as a performer actually was after college. But she was probably my greatest influence to accept that I can't hide from my feelings. And that certainly made me made it easier for me to talk with, with my, my friends and my family about my feelings about my father's death, which I could not do at all when I went to college. And you said a lot of it was just acknowledging, unlocking, totally
0: understandable
1: anger, right? It was anger that you had to get out. Sure. Well, mm, I don't know. I mean, yes, anger. But I think that one of the things I learned from Anne is that anger is actually the last line of defense before I show you my true feelings. Okay. And it's grief, really. Yeah. It's loss. Yeah. But anger is actually a shield that you can put up and it seems very dramatic, and it looks nice on stage. But you know what I mean? But the rarer is, well, well why are you angry? Right. You're angry because you're actually in grief. Right. Because you've had something taken from you. Of course, of course. Or you're angry because you've been made afraid that something else would be taken from you. Or whatever the source of it is. But anger is often the last mannequin of who you, how you really feel. Sure. It's not quite you, but it looks a lot like you. <laughs> well, okay, so you you graduate from Northwestern
0: you're in Chicago the, the capital of improv i, I, I think and yep. not only because of second city which is probably the first thing that comes to people's mind but for you that wasn't even the goal coming out you had done some improv i guess during your time at northwestern but when you came out how did you go from being a guy who who was resistant to the idea of even what they were doing at second city to ending up a part of it i
1: wasn't resistant to what they were doing at second city i had studied um I I performed the Herald Improv, the Improv Olympic, and there was, it was a very sort of pure form of improvisation. And what I mean by pure is there often would not even be a suggestion. You would just go start improvising, or if it was a suggestion, it would be the simplest, most mundane, the the, the most prosaic examples. Like the suggestion is paper, and that's it. Then you go improvise an hour, one act, or a three act, one hour improvisation that has a real play like feel to it, and I loved it. And Second City, which engages in a lot of games and scenes are brought back and then scripted and then polished, was not as not an unalloyed mm-hmm. act of improvisation every night. So they're totally different things. But I got it into my head that, well, Second City's not real improv. Mm-hmm. That doesn't really <laughs> count because there was a rarefied quality to doing these fully improvised plays. Mm-hmm. But then when I graduated from college, I went and traveled for a while and did some work overseas. But when I came back, a friend of mine was the box office manager at Second City, and she said, "I know you don't have a dime. You got no place to live. You're sleeping on a friend's floor." You wait. Weigh, <laughs> I weighed a, whatever. I weighed 55 pounds less than I do now. I weighed 135 pounds, <laughs> and I was just like a ghost. It was green, oh my God. you know. And you ever seen those? Uh, some there's somebody puts up every so often these picture of me, like BuzzFeed just did it, me with a beard and uh, yeah, the yeah, big hair yeah, and everything yeah, like yeah. that. That's, that's around that, that time, time. That's about, but right. that, but thinner <laughs> than that. Like take another. 20 pounds off That's that guy crazy. so she said i could sleep i could work at the box office and i worked at the box office second sitting answering phones you know booking people and i just immediately loved it these people were people of like good intent trying to do comedy mm-hmm. and i comedy saved my life and so i fell in love with it immediately i was like wow some of the earliest examples of me going wow i've been really dumb What like an elitist tool I was (laughs) to like think that this wasn't worth uh, my attention, how lucky I would be to work here. And because you were working at the box office, you were able to now participate in the,
0: what the, the workshops? Yeah. The classes were free
1: if you worked there. And so I said, okay, well, I don't want to get rusty. It's something that's free. I'll do it. So I, so I worked in the box office. I also waited tables, various places. And, and, and then I took classes. It was at the same time. It was like, it's me, Amy Sedaris, Steve Carell. Paul D'Anello, Chris Farley, we were all in the in the program
0: together. And all, I guess, accepted into the touring company in 88? Is that like August 88? Uh, me,
1: Amy Farley, uh, Paul, Rose Abdu, Greg Holloman, Tom Hannigan. I think we were all hired in 80, 88. 88, we were hired to the National Touring Company. I think it was August... Ninth or something like that. I used wow. to know the date in my head because I was, was I was, I was like, oh, I got hired by Second yeah. City. It was
0: a huge deal, right?
1: Yeah, I remember when Joyce Sloan, who was the the Maven
0: mm-hmm.
1: of Second City and really of Chicago, Chicago theater in many ways, she was so important to Chicago theater. She called me up personally to tell me I got in. And I remember thinking, I think I, there might be a place for me. And there that, might be a place for me in entertainment. Wow, you know, I'm I'm in some small way, you know, because the touring yeah. company doesn't work that much. I was like, I'm a member of the Second City. That's amazing. Which I realized I had seen when I was in high school. There was some special on like NBC or something. Bill Murray goes back to Second City and they did old Second City sketches. And I totally forgot about it until I started learning the sketches. Yeah. Like, oh, wait, I saw Bill Murray do this sketch back in 1978 oh or something. God. Well, it, among many other things, including
0: friendships uh, that that later spawned Strangers with Candy and things like that. I, it seems like you've said one of the big takeaways of your time at Second City was something that, Someone there, a director, told you and your colleagues, and I'm going to just quote it back, you have to learn to love the bomb, close quote. What does that mean? And why, was that, why is that important in the world of comedy?
1: I don't know. It's got a little bit of a Zen Cohen-like quality to it <laughs> because I think it means different things to different people. I think right. you have to find what that means for yourself, right. if it means anything right. to you. It was the advice he gave the very first day that he we were in Turco. It was the first show we ever did, not the first day. This is Jeff Machowski. And it was it was me and who was, it was me and Farley and Tom Purcell and Rose Abdu and Janet Jolovitz and 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 Greg Holloman. We just done a show, and it hadn't gone that great, and the improv set hadn't gone that well. And it was the first time we were ever on stage as a as a touring company of the Second City. It was on a Monday. When Turco was in town, they could do the Monday show. And we got paid in cash. Like, it was a real green room. <laughs> Back in the room, you split the house. Right. It was real showbiz. Right. <laughs> and so we're splitting the house. It had been sold out. So right. we made some good green. And he took out a, he, there was a chalkboard on the wall where he put up the suggestions of the audience. And he just erased it. and said, here's who you should listen to at the Second City. Here's who you shouldn't listen to. And the only person he put on the listen to side was the waitresses, the bartenders, and the guy who drove the van. That's great. And he goes, Everybody else, all the people who are supposed to know things here, including me, don't forget them. (laughs) Because the the waitresses like your sketch, then it must be pretty good because they've seen everything. Everything. They've been here for 30 years. Like it was really, there were like 30 year waitresses there. But he said, You got to learn to love the bomb because we'd had a rough set. He goes, You got to learn to love the bomb and didn't really explain it. And it wasn't until years that, I discovered really with, I discovered kind of with Paul because we bombed so much, (laughs) you know, and and then we, but we just loved being on stage with each other, me and Paul and Amy. We loved to be on stage with each other. And so bombing in front of the audience became okay because we were bombing together. And then the audience, I think, I mean, maybe I'm remembering this through rose-colored glasses, they would enjoy it again because we were indefatigable in our right. enjoyment of the moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, so eventually, I guess
0: after two years or something like that, Amy and Paul leave for New York to go do a, a, a play, I
1: think. I have a nervous breakdown. Yes. Okay, Yes.
0: So then you end up following them to do this sketch show, Exit 57, which doesn't last all that long.
1: A couple uh, years. A couple years. Like that,
0: yeah. But... That marks the beginning of kind of a period of instability, it sounds like, where you were married
1: doing- with child and Evie had left her job, you know, yeah. and she was in New York with me and I was in New York and we got canceled and I, I didn't have any money. I didn't actually no, I was in Chicago still. Jeez, I was still, still in, in Chicago, Chicago and I was guess I was writing industrials for people. I was writing, you know, for Novell network management and all medical supply and doing a lot. Yeah, I mean it's not bad. Green it pays the bills, but it was it was kind of soul crushing work. Soul
0: crushing. So yeah. it sounds like then if if you can just maybe connect the dots from the end of X fifty seven through the beginning of the Daily Show, where in that period is I know the Dana Carvey show, where mm-hmm. it was not again not very long, but it was you, Charlie Kaufman, Louis C.K. I think you and Corell are. Ace and Gary respectively for mm-hmm. Robert Smile. There's a lot going on but yeah. it sounds like Robert
1: Carlock who's Robert Tina Fey's great executive producer.
0: But but basically sort of doesn't sound like you were
1: very content and it, and the I wasn't discontented Carvey, but just just didn't last long didn't enough. Didn't last long. Didn't last long enough. We didn't we it we just I think we were just really getting pretty good at it on the 8th show when we got canceled. Oh, that la, that 8th show That's which how short it was. Not a lot of yeah we we did 8 shows we had a 13 show order, so we yeah. had paid for 13, which is why we finally moved to New York because right. I got a network show. Okay, and we made eight of them, and we only broadcast seven of them, or ABC only broadcast seven of them. So it was kind of a famous that shows a kind of a famous flameout because everybody on it, pretty much everybody on it, went on to do a lot of work Absolutely. and pr- pretty pretty darn good work. Absolutely, they hired really well. Yeah. But then I don't think they could figure out what the <laughs> what show was do. about. Right.
0: So how does a guy who's been in comedy and all this stuff end up at some point, okay. Good Morning America?
1: I'll do the links very
0: quickly. Please, yeah, please. So
1: I get hired to do X57 with yeah. Paul and Amy, Mitch Rouse and Jody yeah. Lennon. We do that for two seasons. That gets canceled. My wife has our baby, our first baby. I'm in Chicago. My wife, who was director of development for the Remains Theater in Chicago, Remains goes to Ashcan. She doesn't have a job. My baby doesn't have a job. I don't have a job. Jesus. We're collecting unemployment, <laughs> right. you know, right. and trying not to worry our parents too much. Right. And I hear that Robert Smigel, who's executive producing The Dana Carvey Show, is looking for me. I hear from Dave Keckner who is a great comedic actor. Mm-hmm. And I run into Keckner at Shuba's, which was a bar in Chicago where people used to improv. And I was going down there just to do a set, just mm-hmm. to sort of keep warm. Yeah. And he goes, oh, hey, Smigel's looking for you. I'm like, what do you mean looking for me? He, I have an agent, what, do you, what how is, yeah. I'm right here. <laughs> so I told my agent, He's looking for me. Right. I do three rounds of auditions. I get the gig. We move to New York. It's a fantastic experience, but it's frustrating because it just evaporates. Like, you've got all yeah. this talent. Right. ABC doesn't know what to do with it. I'm not sure we knew what to do with it. And then the show gets canceled. And that's truly, now that's kind of really into a, a dark period. Mm-hmm. Because now I'm in New York paying New York rents, New York money, no job, My wife doesn't have a job, and I don't have any connections in New York. I've made my career in Chicago, and I don't know. I mean, I have an agent, but we don't know each other all that well. And people here don't know you. People don't know you. Yeah, exactly. And so I have no support mechanism. And I ended up writing for SNL briefly because Dana comes over and does this Tom Brokaw announcing Gerald Ford's death sketch, which was something that Robert Smigel, Louis C.K., and I wrote together. And- Dana said to Lauren, hey, Colbert wrote that, that sketch I did tonight. And so they brought me on for a month. It was very nice. I was a writer yeah, there for a month.
0: Yeah,
1: And then that didn't go, go anywhere. And then long, dark period through like the summer, like burning through, no job in New York City, cannot get arrested in an audition. And that summer, Somebody from ABC calls me and says, hey, Good Morning America is going from the entertainment division to the news division because GMA had been entertainment. Mm-hmm. They said, and as, as we were metaphorically sort of handing over the keys before we locked the door between the two yep. divisions, the news people said, hey, is there anybody in the entertainment who kind of looks straight but could probably look like a reporter <laughs> that we could send out to do comedy pieces? Right. And somebody said, Stephen Colbert. And somebody that was who the
0: first time anyone had thought of that context for you.
1: No, know, at the Dana Carvey show. The Dana Carver Show, we did, you know, The Onion? Yeah. Well, The Onion was was young. Mm-hmm. And one of the first things Robert Smigel did when I got to The Dana Carver Show is he handed me a stack of like 50 onions. He said, read this and get this voice in your head. Mm-hmm. I'd never seen them before. Mm-hmm. He said, because we're going to do an Onion News. Because the show had contracted with The Onion to do a newscast every week. And I was going to be the anchor of The Onion News. That's great. And we shot them. We shot some of these pieces. And they didn't air. And they never aired. It just didn't Have really work that? out. No, wow.
0: I know nothing about it. So why is somebody thinking of you in this context? I, I'm wondering if it's because, especially as you adopted this this kind of conservative persona on as quote unquote Stephen Colbert, you, I guess, by being a pretty clean cut, side parted, That's you right. know, white bread guy, yeah, I, I am. You like, look you know,
1: conservative. You should. You you read conservative, right? Right. I mean. I mean. I, I, I look establishment yes. even if not conservative yes. Yes. because I look establishment right. and so who looks straight but can be funny right. they they recommended me I, right. I, I can't remember her name she was a very nice casting director at ABC and so I went over there and they didn't really want me to be funny right. they didn't really want me to be funny <laughs> I did two pieces and then they shot down 25 pitches in a row and so I'm like ah, but I, I they had to pay me right. so I was very grateful <laughs> right. because I could make rent you right. know right. Right. and while I was doing that I got a call from my agent saying do you want to go meet with The Daily Show. People are looking for correspondents. I'm like, oh my God, I'm an actor. Why why am I gonna be a correspondent? It's like, just go, just meet them. like, this is my career now. Now I'm a reporter, (laughs) and because I didn't know anything about The Daily Show. This was in the first year. This was before the first anniversary with Kilburn. Kilburn, Yeah, Yeah. and so I watched it the night before I went. I didn't like it. They originally didn't even have an audience, you know. It was just the studio. There oh, was nobody. Geez. It was that just Craig and the cameraman. Yeah, yeah, you know? Yeah. It was like watching, you know, a news version of Talk Soup. Oh my God. And but I went over there and of course I said I just loved it. <laughs> I just thought it was fantastic. And they said and the people there said, Hey, so you were a member of the Second City? Yeah. And you you like wrote and produced a TV show, sketch show, yeah. You were on the Dana Carver show, yeah. So you've written for Saturday Night Live, yeah. And now you're a reporter for ABC <laughs> News? I said, yeah. He goes, you're genetically engineered to do this job. I'm like, that's what I've been saying, <laughs> whatever. So I I got the gig. Right. And then, again, it was like, oh, well, this is interesting. Like They're actually trying to do some fun mm-hmm. I- I- original stuff here. Less um, political in those days, right? Yeah, it was more like local news or kind of like almost like PM Magazine kind of yeah. kicker pieces, yeah, right, you know? Right, right. And then Craig would do just almost like one-off jokes on, almost like monologue jokes yeah. at the desk. They didn't have a lot of structure to right, them. There was right. no essay-like right. quality to mm-hmm. it. And, you know, and he was a different guy than John. And and then I did that for a while, off and on. I mean, they weren't thr- thrilled with me. Because you were also going off, bre- pretty
0: soon after you got there, you had to go off and do some Strangers with Candy stuff. Well, we had pitched Strangers with Candy,
1: well- I was doing The Daily Show. They weren't using me much. Mm-hmm. They thought I was a little sketchy. <laughs> they thought I was a little too sketchy. Right. They wasn't playing it straight enough. Okay. And I got that note more than once. Oh, my God. And at the time, Dino Stamatopoulos, mm-hmm. who had been one of the writers on the Dana Carver mm-hmm. show, mm-hmm. Dino had been made the head writer of a show for Bob Morton and Barry Levinson and Tom Fontana. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to do backstage at a sketch show. It was before 30 Rock or mm-hmm. anything like that. and Or Studio 60 Live mm-hmm. on the Sunset Strip. Yes. And... He said, Why don't you come write it with me? Because we've gotten along nice mm-hmm. at the old show. Mm-hmm. So it was me, Mike Stoyanov, who was also wrote on Car V, mm-hmm. and Scott Atzit, you know, from, from 30 Rock mm-hmm. and also from Second City. We yes, know each other back yes, in Chicago, yeah. and Dino. And so we wrote that show. But while I was, you know, while I wrote, while we were working on that show for four months in LA, Paul Danello and Amy Sedaris and I developed Strangers with Candy. And we also, when I was back in New York, we pitched that. So that got picked up while I'm doing the Dino project yeah. for for Barry Levinson. We also at night I'd go home I'd write Strangers with the Candy with Paul. We wrote that pilot, oh. and then when I got back to New York, Strangers got picked up. Remember, I remember it got picked up while I was at the Daily Show one yeah. day. I didn't have an office. I had I had a chair next to oh, someone's Jesus. desk, Jesus. and I and I literally <laughs> had the corner of Stu Bailey, who I think is Carson Daly's exec now. Okay. On the corner of his desk, I would eat my sandwich right oh, there on the corner God. of his, and that was my desk. <laughs> and they were offering me, you know, right. writer producer, right. our own show and everything. Yeah, so I left there, to go yeah. do that, and then
0: we did that for three seasons while continuing to maintain a, a light workload at the Daily
1: Show, right? You were when still, available, yeah, when available, when available, because I was under contract to both shows, right? And I was, I was, I was like a pay-to-play contract, right. like they would use, they pay me when they used sure. me. And they liked me. They'd gotten used to my sketchiness or I had changed. Yeah. And so I was going back and forth. And then, little third season of Strangers, I really wasn't there around at, mm-hmm. at the Daily Show because it was super intensive. And Paul and I were writing every word and breaking every story. And during that period of time, this guy named John Stewart took over the Daily Show. Had and you heard I, of him? Yeah, well, yeah. But I mean, yeah, I knew John around from like short attention theater. My yes. wife knew John, really? which was strange. When he got the gig, when he got the gig, she's like, "Who's John? What's John Leibowitz doing up there?" Because she knew him back when he first came up to New York. Because mm-hmm. his roommate was a, dated her roommate or right. something like that, and and so she would. He's this quiet guy in the corner drinking an Amstel Light all the time. Like he's not funny. What's going right. on? Oh, and so she knew him before I did. Wow. And when I came back, when I when I came back for the 2000 campaign. I remember the first day I really came back to the John show, not that I hadn't done, I'd done bits with him before, right. like I did his first show, and right. I, but I didn't do much that first right. year. And he was, he was we had re- hit it off immediately. You did. Like I immediately wanted to be back. Yeah. Like I was like, well, if Strangers even goes, I just want to be back here because yeah. I could feel that he was injecting the show with purpose and our editorial position and when I came back, I was he invited us to like have our own, to, to put our own thoughts, our own feelings, our own editorial position in what we were doing. It wasn't, we weren't widgets to right, him. Right, right. We were creative partners. Right. And when I came back, I was completely blown away about the show he had created in the year that I essentially had been gone. And I realized immediately that I just kind of stumbled into the best possible job Amazing. on TV in the second greatest campaign of all time, yeah. which we thought at the time <laughs> could was be the great, how could it possibly well, be stranger right. than this? <laughs> so
0: Indecision 2000, which is how you guys promoted that coverage, was that the first introduction
1: of quote unquote Stephen Colbert? Kind of, yeah. That 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 season was the, before I had done, when I was working for Craig and, and for Madeline Smithberg at the original show, that I was doing more of a local news guy right even my suits were like I was like khaki pants and blue blazers right. and regimental striped ties and more like the the sports guy who gets to go do a summer kicker okay and or the weatherman right but then I chose different models when when the when John came over like I chose like well I want a little more status so this' a national you, show I want to be Stone Phillips or something this like came that. about because you're he's encouraging you guys to develop personas and you say
0: this is the guy I want to be
1: no he's he's developing us to I I don't know just invest more. And I developed a persona. Yeah. You know, I developed a persona. And then there were some fantastic writers, one of whom was well, Ben Carlin, his executive Mm -hmm. producer, David, uh, DJ Javerbaum, who was probably my favorite. We were the closest writers together there. And he and I were very simpatico in terms of how we could take a (laughs) self-important ego and inflate and make him part of the story. So it was you guys sitting down and figuring out the humor here, because initially, but it's on a daily basis, it's not figuring out. It's literally it's incremental. incremental. It's like oysters gathering on a bank. There's <laughs> just a little bit every day, and then a year later, you're like, oh look, we've developed a persona. Well, because even in the
0: in terms of the model, Stone Phillips is. Kind of funny, in just that he was sort of the the carved and stuff. Like if you, he is the guy you would think of as like a serious newsman,
1: but he is it, a serious newsman. No, of course. I, I No, don't the thing is, like right. Stone is like he's he's such the total package. Right. Like he has the voice yes. and the looks and the hair and the you know and you know he's 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 manly, right. but he's also a very good yeah, newsman. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But how did it
0: evolve from him being the model to what I understand the model was eventually
1: O'Reilly, Hannity, Beck, Dobbs.
0: When and how did that change?
1: Well, in already in, in the 90s, but specifically after, I think, well, I don't know if it was in response to it, but certainly after 9-11 in the early aughts, punditry and nighttime punditry became this tremendous cash cow because the nation is whipped up into an emotional froth, as it well should be, and punditry... Harvests emotion for profit, I think. Mm-hmm. And so the folks at the Daily, I'm mean Madeline Smithberg, saying to me like, "We've got to do something with you. That's we want to do something that's pundit based, and we think it should be you." And so we started doing a commercial, yeah, called the Colbert Report within and the Daily Show. Within the Daily Show, and it was just a an ad for a show that did not didn't exist <laughs> called the Colbert Report, and I was Stephen Colbert, you know some. Some people give you the truth. Some people give you opinion. Well, he'll give you neither. I forgot what it was. Something like it's the no fact zone. That was where we first came up with the no fact zone. And you know Colbert, it's French, bitch. You know it was, and it was like you know don't my name of my book on this commercial was like my new book. Don't buy this book if you don't have any balls. Do you have any? Well, do you? I do. Let me show them to you. And we would cut me into like interviewing Condi Rice, going, Condi, I'll give you the last word. Shut up, you're an idiot. It was stuff like that. So it
0: really does seem like if there was one person more than anyone else who was the model, it would be Mister
1: O'Reilly. Oh yeah, well he's the king. Like if you're going to model punditry, there were other people like Aaron Brown in a way. His sort of, I mean, I've in some ways like Anderson Cooper, bright as a shiny new penny. Uh, Aaron Brown, who was like, would kind of mull over the news and. Just have his moment of, you know, somewhat murrow esque reflection right. on the day, <laughs> but a little bit, a little bit like also a little right. adjunct professor right. of poetry. Right. But there was no denying that the king was O'Reilly, and the number of words that could come out of that man's mouth with seeming sincerity. <laughs> right. I could never. I've never really been able to figure out whether O'Reilly meant it. what he said. Yeah. You know, I, I've over the years I have different. Levels of belief. What was your, what were your personal feelings about this guy, Bo Riley? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I watched him professionally. I yeah. don't think I wouldn't watch him yeah. for pleasure, right? You know, I watched him professionally. But he you was didn't. is it like sort of watching it with a, a sense of I can't stand this guy or or what? I just seemed like a bully. Yeah, you know, it's like I don't like bullies. I was, yeah. you know, like a lot of people in comedy. I was bullied. Right, you know, when I was younger, yeah. and so he just seemed like a lot of bullies I sure. knew growing up, and. I, is incredibly enjoyable to inhabit that skin because yeah. then you just give yourself over. Like it's, it's sort of easy to improvise with that person right. because you are giving into your appetites, including your appetite to always be right, which right. is one of the greatest appetites or the appetite to declare yourself loved. <laughs> you need love so much that you just declare that it's happening. People get me. We have a relationship. Right. No, we don't. Yeah, we do. <laughs> you know, that right. it's, I really enjoy. Enjoyed him because I really do think that he's a well-intentioned, poorly informed, <laughs> high-status idiot. Which was your model, and which was my model, yeah. So in a so you you know Daily Show,
0: you've done these segments. You got we got to know and love you. The this week in God, all the stuff from the field.
1: I know the two thousand four. <laughs> that's me in the. That's this my voice. Got, yeah. Oh really? Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> we we're like, how do we make this dumber? We're like, I got it. Well, That's one of the greatest things was, you know, you're onto something good but you go, okay, this is great. How can we make it dumber? But then, you know, you're on to like, you've really got a tiger by the tail.
0: And I know you've said that also from that period, the 2004 democratic convention was a highlight. You guys worked your asses off there.
1: Yeah. Me and Jim Margolis, who was a producer, he ended up being a producer over at Veep and he's got a new show right now. I can't remember what it is. It's, yeah, yeah. The, it's the, anyway, he and I like had a fantastic time just there. improvising with the crowds at the convention. And then that was like a whole other level of enjoyment. Like, But the thing
0: that popped the most, I guess, or, or that at least internally people saw the most potential in was this –
1: was this know-it-all character? And how does that then lead to... Well, it, it implies, a, the, just the, the bit itself yeah. implies a show that no one's seen. Right, People were calling up and saying, when can I see the Colbert Report? <laughs> and and Comedy Central was saying that there's no such thing. It's like, no, no, I saw the ad on The Daily Show. And so we had to start, whenever we were doing the Colbert Report bits on the show, we'd have to say, you know, this is it, this is a show, John would say, this is a show that critics have called already canceled. So people would <laughs> stop... But then I really liked working with John, but I wanted to leave because there's only so much I could do. John was always going to be the guy with the ball, mm-hmm. and and well, he should be. There's yeah. No greater runner. His, you know, he's the master. But I knew I could only do so much for him. It was a beautiful note, but there was only one note that I could do for him in his, you know, his chorus of of correspondence. And and he wanted to do something with me. First, we pitched a show to NBC, which they bought the pilot idea, then didn't make the pilot. Which would have been uh,
0: acting, or it would
1: have been... Would acting of, would yeah. have been a, would have been actually a good old sitcom. Okay. And they didn't make it, and then after they didn't make it, he said, do you want to do something else? And I said, sure, and Comedy Central Company said, do you want to do a, a, a spinoff show of The Daily Show? And John and I talked about it, and we said, well, what about The Colbert Report? And, and, and we, we literally met for 45 it. minutes, <laughs> and I have this page still on my yeah. Microsoft Word, and that page is just a scattering of words, but you look at it and go, "Oh yeah, that's the Colbert that's Report." The Everything we said, <laughs> you know, it's right there.
0: Well, so this was now going to put you at eleven thirty p.m. directly opposite the the big dogs where you now are. But but at that time, I guess it's Leno, Letterman, and, and also Kimmel at that
1: point. But but there was no sense of competition. Nah, I mean, there was, you guys there was, was are cable. You're doing we're your cable. Own thing. We were like, you know, as my executive producer here, Tom Purcell, likes to say, we were putting out a college newspaper. <laughs> that's what it felt like. There was no sense of our position in. Show business, But your thesis was there from the start in terms
0: of even word of the day on episode one, truthiness, mm-hmm. yeah. which took on a life of its own. This is going to be sort of calling people out for their bullshit in a way that they can almost recognize.
1: Well, right? to be the bullshit. Yeah. That was it. Like, you know, everybody can smell bullshit. Our attempt was to manifest the turd. Right. <laughs> I am the turd right, right. in the punch bowl of our public discourse. That's what I was trying to be. And- <laughs> The joke or the thing we used to say is, if you see something in politics or in in entertainment or in the media, the closer it looks like me, the less you should trust it. (laughs) I was like, you know, a little model. (laughs) Like, here's the thing you're looking for. Now don't touch that thing. (laughs) Don't let this get on you.
0: What I need help understanding, though, is how a guy who we were saying earlier reads a little bit as conservative, had this religious upbringing, is a Southern... You know, gentleman, in in his daily life, how does how does this guy turn it off and with a straight face ask? Let's just take the better know a district segments as an example. Ask a U.S. congressman if he has to take off his toupee when he goes through security, or a U.S. congresswoman from Ohio, a state which has produced 22 astronauts. What it is about her state that makes people want to flee the earth? <laughs> or my personal favorite with Elliot Engel, if you can comb his mustache. <laughs>
1: Can I comb your mustache? Yes, exactly. Like, man, I usually do that. I do that with a little. Everyone had a mustache. <laughs> not everyone said yes, right. but Elliot did. He
0: did. So, like, but. Why? How, I don't know. How do you turn off the part where. How do you keep the straight face and how do you even bring yourself to be able
1: to do that? That's not you. Well, I don't know. Maybe it is. I is mean, I, I don't know. Not fearing the bomb, I guess. Yes, I guess. I mean, I like awkwardness. <laughs> I like the feeling of. I don't know where this comes from. I don't really. But I like the feeling of awkward. So I have since I was young, like the the moment of embarrassment. I guess I had to because I was, you know, again, I was sort of bullied and everything. Yeah. You kind of like to kind of embrace s- it, steer into yeah. the feeling terrible. And so right. there's like an odd, like, not everybody likes caviar. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's a little too salty. Right. It's too briny. What do I have in my mouth? <laughs> right. What is that? Is right. well, I want to eat fish eggs. But the, for me, like the caviar oh. of any interviews was the moment of silence. Where the person didn't know, can't believe I said that to them. Because you're not in advance saying, hey, we're, I'm going to go into character and it's going to, you just come
0: in as quote unquote Stephen Colbert.
1: Right. I would try not. I mean, later the show, I mean, if someone was on my, if I was in the field, I would try not to do that because mm-hmm. I knew I was looking for organic human reaction. Right. If I was in the studio, I was, I mean, we're doing a live comedy show. So I would say, you know, I'm an idiot. And please don't. <laughs> Take it personally. Take it personally, that <laughs> right. kind of thing. You know, we're going to have a great time. Just set me straight. We'll have a great time. But I don't know. My I don't know. My wife would also often marvel at that. And she's like, your family are all so nice. Like, your mother is a good person. How do you, why do you enjoy saying these terrible things <laughs> right. to people? These helpless people. I'm like, I don't know why, but it seems it seems to work. I well, the obvious follow up though is why do they after they've seen it enough times?
0: Why, why do they, they come keep on? calling on? I don't know. <laughs> the camera
1: lobotomizes what right. it points at. I guess. I I mean, I not anymore really. Yeah. I don't think so anymore because there's something that has to be completely cards on the table about mm-hmm. the work that we do now. Right. Which was difficult for me because that was a difficult transition for me. Not because that work is more difficult, but it, there's a, there's a challenge to driving a car straight mm-hmm. <laughs> as opposed to, like, swerving all over the mm-hmm. road, which is kind of what subversive work is. Yeah. I considered myself for many years a, a subversive, yeah. a comedic subversive. Yeah. I look like a perfectly respectable person, right. <laughs> but... I really, I look like, like yeah. I'm not Protestant, but I look right. like a wasp. Right. I'm a wasp, symbol of the establishment. Right. White, male, Christian, straight. Mm-hmm. Catholicism is another sort of form of conservatism mm-hmm. or establishment, mm-hmm. you know, because you belong to the Microsoft of Christianity, right. which is the Catholic Church, <laughs> you know, and you're willing to toe the line with dogma, right. Right. and dogmatism itself right. is a form of establishment, But I don't know, somehow with all that, I was raised to be okay with rejecting the idea or questioning the idea of why am I, quote-unquote, America neutral? Right. Why is white Christian straight male somehow the hegemonic figure of America? And I really liked undermining that through my behavior. (laughs) But to really undermine it, you've got to embrace it first. And so that's why it was all Brooks Brothers suits, (laughs) you know, and regimental strife ties. And all, but all the, like America is the greatest uh, country on earth. That's all very sincere. Right. But now what do you get away with just for believing that was sort of the question of the show. Last thing about
0: Colbert Report is just you and John separately and together, as much as you guys often like to downplay, it really became a primary source for a lot of, a lot of people who maybe don't consume traditional news media. I had classmates at Brandeis University. One guy wrote a thesis, I think, that the two of you are the Will Rogers of this era, and you know people are doing dissertations on your influence and all this stuff. When
1: you're, when you're, I can tell you why we're not. Okay. Because Will Rogers has a statue in the Capitol Building.
0: Yeah. well, so, And I don't think not we yet. ever will. <laughs> well, but the main thing, though, is when along the line, did you realize that that was the relationship that a lot of people had with you, and did it add a sense of responsibility in terms of, on top of just being
1: funny, not just being funny, but, you know, on top of being funny. I I don't want to speak for John, but I'd never heard him downplay, or I certainly, I wouldn't want to downplay if people said they got, they were informed by the work that I did. I think really what I would say, and I think I've heard John say the same thing, is that I'm Not downplaying the people who got their information, but that's not our intention. Mm-hmm. our intention the the information is there so that we can do the jokes right. on this information that's very interesting to us because mm-hmm. you can't do these kind of shows. this show I'm doing now, yes, or the or the shows that I did before without uh, caring, without giving a damn about what you're talking about. I mean, you can mm-hmm. but boy, that's that would probably get to pretty grinding work mm-hmm. if you if you don't if you don't have some uh, emotional attachment to it so. We're writing our jokes off of something that people care about and that is given the status of important because right. it's in the news. Right. And if people say that we influence them or they get their, that's fine. I can't dictate right. what people, how people feel and, and what people get from the work that I did. Mm-hmm. I would only say that that was not the intention. Right. Right. And so our intention or my intention and our responsibility always remains the same right. is to tell jokes. Being factually accurate helps you do the joke because the devil's in the details. Right. And also, if you do a good joke on a story today and do your best, I mean, not always, obviously, but do your best to try to inform the audience accurately while you tell the joke, you can build a joke on it tomorrow right. or another joke today. If it's all make-em-ups, right. then there's a one-off and you'll never get back right. to it again. So that's the responsibility is to do the best job I can. Right. And and that job is comedy. Yeah, It happens to be on what happened today. Right. And now on this show, it's, well, what's everybody talking about today? Right. Well, just as we
0: as we enter the final homestretch here about the, the late show. <laughs> and here comes yeah. Rusty.
1: <laughs> in the final quarter, right? it's Glockenspiel, Crystal Shins, and Cropworthy. Cropworthy in the lead. <laughs>
0: Okay, so it's April 2014. Letterman announces he's going to retire. You hear this. Are you thinking?
1: I was watching TV, and I think they broke into like Wolf Blitzer told really? me. Really? I, I, I was getting ready to do the show. <laughs> like, uh, well, David Letterman is <laughs> apparently, according to a tweet, uh, it was uh, uh, um, one of the members of R.E.M. Yeah. tweeted it. Oh, but yeah. David just said oh, that he right, was stepping right, right. down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now,
0: when you hear that, you're thinking... I might like to end my show and take over that job, or did someone else raise that? I had already,
1: I had already decided I wasn't going to do the show anymore. It, it was April 2014. In the summer of 2012, I signed a two-year contract, knowing that was it. Knowing that that was the last one. I'd already told my agent, and I told my wife, and I told John, and I think maybe my assistant. You know, but but that was it. That was it. And so I didn't know what I was going to do next. I had an idea or a couple of ideas for shows or movie scripts, that right. sort of thing. But the idea, I would never... I, mean, I, I, was, I was curious if, if Dave ever went, if they would ask me, you know?
0: Because I don't think a lot of people even thought you would be interested because you had been someone else. You'd been a, other than yourself for so long. You no, know, I was an actor. Right. And this is not acting. Not acting. This is not acting. So this is different. So how soon did you think, I actually am interested in this?
1: Well, the very first thing... I said to my agent when I found out that they were making some overtures. Yes, you know, it wasn't a yes. certain thing. Yes, was baby doll. I said, <laughs> baby doll. The last thing mm-hmm. I ever thought I would do next is something harder. Mm-hmm. And he said, it won't be hard. Right. It'll be easier. Oh my god. It'll be easier. Oh my god. Because you don't have to do the character like that. Well, yeah. <laughs> god bless him he was wrong well it was a harder job yeah it's a harder job but you know as i said i was wondering if they'd ever ask me mm-hmm. and and when i but i never it was not on my ambition because i thought i don't know if, i i i have always been like something of a selective taste yeah. <laughs> you know like you know like i'm an acquired taste you know like that's why like cable seemed right for me like do they really want to take a risk on me on CBS? Because they know they're hired, right? right? And listen, Les was like, no, this is what we want. We want to do something different. So, you know, with that much consultation, talk with my sister, because I would normally talk with my mom, but my right. mom was no longer with us. She just passed, yeah. But I, uh, yeah it was, but I, I, and that was one of the reasons why I was like, didn't know what to do is because I'd always wanted to do Oh, what's a boy want to do? Wants his mom to be impressed by what he's doing. Right. And so I didn't have a mom to impress anymore. So why would I take this gig if it's not going to impress mom? Mom and I were the ones who were always watching Carson together. Right. She was the one who would let me stay up to watch David Brenner or John yeah. Biner, yeah. you know, or Pete Barbuti or whoever, like, you know, to do their material. If there was a stand up, she'd let me stay up, right. even though I never really wanted to be a stand up. But she would let me watch watch that. So in some ways, like all of this was for her, because which so this might have been something that she would have gotten a kick out of you doing. Oh, me? without a doubt, yeah. She would absolutely have been so tickled. But without her saying that, I was like a little purposeless. Honest to God. Yeah. But then my my sister Mary was in town. I said, listen, I listen. This thing is it's all you know happening very fast. It's possible. Yeah. And she just smiled, and I went, oh. If I end up getting this gig, and this thing ends up being successful, somebody at CVS should send you flowers. Because I'm taking it because you just smiled.
0: That's it,
1: that's amazing.
0: Well, let's just note what you were sacrificing here because first of all, being on cable, you have a lot of, I would say, less standards and practices uh, involvement, right? That's one thing. Mm -hmm. Then going over to broadcast, you had been doing a half hour four nights a week, now you're doing an hour five nights a week. Yeah, it's 80
1: hours a year to 202 hours a year. That's insane.
0: You'd been in character for over a decade, now you're being asked to leave that character and be someone who people maybe never knew or didn't remember or whatever. And you and I no, don't know. No one never maybe, knew
1: that guy.
0: Yeah, and, and I wondered if that ever gave you any concern that, that people might not connect with this guy in the same way. But basically, how was the how was the transition? Was Dave friendly, helpful,
1: whatever? It was so nice. Yeah. Dave had always been really nice to me yeah. when I would come over. I was lucky enough to come on his show ten times. Yeah. A nice round number. Yeah. Yeah. And I, oh, oh God, I always loved coming on. I'd go home and watch the show and just watch Dave's face to see whether I was really, because I interviewed a lot of people. I was like, was he really interested in what I was saying? Did I really make him laugh? You know, that was a huge joy. If you could make Dave for real laugh, really surprise him with the story. That was that was the greatest feeling in the world. And so he'd always been very nice to me. And as soon as I got the gig, it was announced, he called me up. And, and I actually, my assistant just found the transcript of oh, our that's conversation. Because nice. as soon as I got off, I wrote down everything that we said to each other so I could remember, remember. it. Oh, that's great. Like, and she found it the other day. And then when shortly before he left, he I said, can I come talk to you? And he's like, sure. So I came over and we met him in one of these offices yeah. on this floor. And just had a couple bottles of water and sat there and talked. And I asked him a ton of questions. He extremely gracious about it. At one point, I said, do you mind me asking all these questions? And he goes, no one's ever asked me these questions wow. before. And I said, really, never? And he goes, who would know yeah. to ask yeah. and be who would care what the answer is? Because I was asking things about how to play this space right. and what his decisions have been like literally where'd you put your desk there yeah. and where do you put your producers and how do you deal with the balcony as opposed to the to the I've always thought that must be hard deal with two yeah. separated yeah. audiences like that because this theater is split up yeah. in a very interesting way as as I've discovered you know where do you hide from your producers when you don't want to be found mm-hmm. like that made him laugh He was right. like I got a great place for right. you he told me later right. I haven't That's used good, it yet. And then he taught me how to use the elevator here. Cuz there's an old so, brass-handled freight elevator yeah. from 1927 cuz the theater's from 27. Uh, Hammerstein built it. And, and this, you know, I think I don't know. I, I'm in Dave's old office. I guess it was Hammerstein's old yeah, office yeah. or Sullivan's old wow. office or whatever. But he showed me how to run the elevator. And then he goes, "There. Now it's waiting for you." And it was like uh, it was like uh, you know, the the owner of the shop hanging yeah, you the keys the or like handing you the keys to the old truck or That's something great. like that. That's great. Yeah, he was so he couldn't have been nicer. You come over with, I think, almost all of your, I yeah, everybody. eighty people, pretty much like a couple people, but most of them.
0: It sounds like the the turning point here was that initially in the early days, you were, from what I've read, super attentive to every single detail from the beams to the whatever. That's what I've read. I mean, no, it's wrong. true. It's
1: true. Like when you're doing a smaller show, smaller staff, yeah, less material, highly focused intention. Yeah, you can be that level of control freak. Yes. I mistakenly thought that, well, all I need to do is put my foot on the gas harder. Right. And I can have my finger in every pie. Right. Not true. So it was, it was initially, I don't want or need a, a showrunner to help me? No, I don't. I, absolutely. Why would I need a showrunner? I ran my old show. Right. I run the new one.
0: And so eventually, though, you what made you oh, recognize I, that I
1: lost my mind. Yeah, what are you talking about? I lost my mind. I couldn't sleep at night because, really? A- clearly the uh, aesthetically or in terms of having an like an editorial intention the show was not coalescing people didn't know what they were going to get they didn't know what it was about cuz neither did i i had thrown out the sort of I throw out the baby with the bathwater in trying to not be my character. I also threw out kind of my interests, which led to the character, politics. which is politics or just what happened today. Right. What is the conversation that's happening today? What were you doing instead? I don't know. Very light, small stories. Right. Maybe a, one big story, but we weren't telling it in a story form. Right. It was a couple of jokes and then we'd move on. Whereas what we really are, as my exec Tom keeps reminding me, is like, well, we're storytellers. Right. We can't just do one joke. We we want to tell the story to the audience of why we even wanted to tell one joke about this thing, why it's interesting, or why it might be something that is the conversation. And and also we came to this other realization that we're not there, the old show, because, I don't know, we were often not doing the story that John did that night. We were doing other stories or stars with a little bit of a longer build to them, like more of a long read kind of stories. We had to inform the audience a lot. Almost we were breaking news to the audience unintentionally. Here... We learned that that's not the job. Really, what works in one of these shows, is at least my experience, is that I'm going to talk to you about the thing that you've already been talking about today. Mm-hmm. And we're going to give you our take on this thing that everybody's talking about to give you some context and maybe calm you down about it. Right. That took a long time for us to figure out. And we didn't have the time or the space to figure that out until Chris Licht came on, until Eight I had hours. an honest-to-God showrunner
0: april 2015 you now have a showrunner you can focus more on the comedy he can help with the other purely, stuff. purely as he purely said
1: our deal was yeah. he said any moment you're not thinking about comedy i've failed and i said let's shake on it you want the job that's great that's pretty much you can boil down a two-hour conversation to that sentence i'm like all right it's a deal so two
0: weeks after the election, November 2016, first of all, you were on the air that night doing the thing on Showtime
1: that you're also nominated for. Isn't that interesting? We're, <laughs> so, we're nominated yeah. for, for the show and we're nominated for writing yeah, for that amazing. show and directing. And I, I really love people to see some of the stuff we wrote for it. They should. yeah. <laughs> well, because Someday we'd love to show you some of the stuff we wrote for it. Because that really, I guess, would be another
0: turning point where it's from what I've read, he comes over to you when it looks like when everybody starts to realize this is not going the way we thought. And he says, don't worry about cracking people. Embrace the, the sort of political, just real talk that you might want to do anyway, right?
1: I think what he said is, okay, no more bits. Yeah. Like, no more bits. Like, yeah. all the things we have planned, let's just throw out the window and just go over there and talk to people. And so that's what the show became. And that's what the show, we've never, we've tried to not let go of that. Yeah. Because after that show... I said, wow, I, if there's one thing I take from that live show yeah. is that we got our emotional skegs in the water. Like we were honest. And I'm not saying that we f- fulfill that ambition every day, but we try. Oh, yeah. When we're finished rehearsal, one of the things we'll go down, we'll go to the river and we go like, well, what, how do we really feel? <laughs> how, like we've got a lot of good jokes here. Mm-hmm. Do we mean them? Because there's jokes that are one of the things I learned from John is that there's a successful joke and there's a joke that you mean. Mm-hmm. And they're not always the same thing. And it's better in the long run to do the joke that you mean. And don't worry so much about the successful joke because ultimately you'll get a, you're good enough. You'll yeah. make that joke work. And so that's one of the things that we try to remind ourselves every night. Like, okay, what do we really mean? What, what, what's our emotional state here? What's, what who am I in representing a collective emotional state? And can I honestly represent that? Or is it just purely my state? Because right. sometimes it's just mine. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, the job of, being a host of one of these shows is your tip of a spear. You know, my my Twitter handle says Stephen Colbert vehicle for a reason. I'm (laughs) a vehicle for a lot of ideas on, on a nightly basis. But that show changed us because it showed me the value of just not pretending to feel some way you're not. And that leads to this last question,
0: which is just what's happened since then. Two weeks after the election, you are number one in the ratings for the first time, May 1st. In response to Trump's treatment of your CBS colleague, John Dickerson, you had that famous cock holster. I'm not familiar. Rant that you may have heard of I'm about. not
1: familiar. I like a lawyer present before I.
0: <laughs> Basically, what's what's happened since then, it seems like from in the last year, you, not the Tonight Show, are now number one in the ratings. This is the first time that has happened in 22 years, except for the
1: Conan J transition year. I don't even think that year because maybe the, even not. N- this is the first season. First full season. Full season that the uh, CBS has won in 22
0: years. You're A year ago, you were not an Emmy nominee. This year, you are an Emmy nominee. And your primary competition, that has flipped. And people are, they can't seem to get enough of it. And so I get, you know, everybody is today talking about Scaramucci from yesterday. It's, it's just become a pattern where it feels to me, and I'm not in it every day, that the whole paradigm has shifted. And so I just want to ask you as a final question, how are you different and in what ways are you better than you were a year ago? And what is your outlook for the future of, of this whole thing that I imagine you're going to be a part of for a number of years into the future? I
1: hope so. I'll tell you there's a lot of things that have changed. I have an even deeper respect for Kimmel and Fallon and Conan and the people who came before us. I always respected their comedy, but I really respect them professionally because I didn't know what they were doing until I got here. I'm in awe of like a guy like Dave doing 32 years or Kimmel. Like, what is Kimmel now? 17 years? Been, I think like, 15. 15 years, yeah, yeah. like that. Anyway, I've I've always been friends with those guys. I don't. Yeah. There's in late night now. People get disappointed that there's, there's no not. Feuds. There's that there isn't a feud. <laughs> right. uh, but but now I actually have a deeper respect for for all of them than yeah. I did before. I've learned to trust my staff. Yeah. Because you know, being a control freak is mild form of distrust if you know what I mean, yeah. and doing the live shows, which you didn't You've done a lot ask about, but yeah. we did 17 or something live shows over the past year. They made me trust the staff and uh, God damn it. They've just killed it. Yeah. They've just done a fantastic job. I'm so, I so admire what they've achieved and what, and how the show now is far more bottom up, like how they bring the ideas. I'm so grateful to the work that they've done I've allowed myself to become like kind of a pure performer now. I don't try to produce the show in my head. People ask me what's going to happen today, and I say, I just work here. You know, I've been able to let go the reins of 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 control to I don't know if I say a large degree. That's for somebody else to say. Yeah. But I would say for me, it feels like an enormous degree. You know, I walk into a meeting and Chris might say to me, You're not part of this meeting. And I go, <laughs> Okay, I'll leave. Which I think was a shock right. to people because yeah. there was no meeting I was not right. in before for years yeah. for a decade right. letting go and just enjoying being on stage with the audience that's its kind of what I realized I why I took this job is I wanted to change as a performer I wanted to change what my responsibilities were on a daily basis I just wanted to go out there and do jokes for people They might be about things that as I said people think are significant but I want to go out doing the jokes for the people I want to go out there and be interested in my guest and the last two years has allowed me to do that I could not do it for the first year Chris gave us the, the space to do it. And then me trusting my staff allowed me to let go and just be the guy on stage. And that's the only way I could reveal myself. I could actually be myself on audit, for the audience. And you're enjoying try to do anything it more else. because, oh, I mean, the fact I that— I love it. And I, I, I love this job. I, I, I couldn't love it more. This feels right now like the first year of the old gig. There's a sense of excitement. And, and I, hope, I, I hope that is throughout the whole building. That people feel like they've created something new that wasn't here yeah. a year ago and they pay their dues in that first year. It was hard on everybody. Cause you don't wanna you know, it, it, it's just as hard if no one's watching. Right. It's just as hard if you're getting like critique for not having found your footing. I'm so happy for them that they've got the the reward of now having created something that people can appreciate and, and, and more people see on a nightly basis. Well, thank you so much for doing this. And
0: I, I'm very excited to, that you guys are, that you're going to the Emmys not only as the host.
1: Oh yeah, hey, that's going to be which fun. Which will be fun. I forgot, but yeah. as a nominee, it would have been a yeah. little less fun probably. Would if you would <laughs> have been <laughs> Way less fun. But thank you very much. All right, thanks. Appreciate it. Nice talking to you.